You know, in real estate jargon, a rundown house in need of repair is labeled a fixer-upper. You'll never see an advertisement for a shack or a dump. I mean, nobody wants to purchase a condemned domicile. But put out an ad using the term a fixer-upper, and maybe, just maybe, some young, energetic, handyman might just see it as a challenge and take the dump off your hands. At the time of Haggai, the temple in Jerusalem was a real fixer-upper. For four centuries, there was nothing like the grand and glorious temple built by Solomon. It was one of the wonders of the ancient world. It served at the center of Judah's national life. Now, it was a patch of weed and rock. In 586 B.C., the dreaded Babylonian army burst through the walls of the city of Jerusalem. They demolished the city. They toppled the temple. They took the Jews back to Babel. As they served out a 70-year sentence in captivity, what was left of the temple there lay in ruins. The temple had been reduced to rubble. Yet as God would have it, in 536 B.C., the tide turned. The Medes and the Persians, they conquered Babylon. And the new administration, headed by Darius the Mede and Cyrus the Persian, they were friends of the Hebrew prophet Daniel. They were fond of the Jews. King Cyrus allowed them to return home. And that's when God could have said, Anyone interested in a real fixer-upper? For it was God's goal for his people to return to the land he'd promised them and rebuild their temple, a place of sacrifice and worship. And there was an ambitious young handyman who loved God and who accepted God's call. Rubble was right up Zerubbabel's alley. Now think of Zerubbabel as the combination of a builder and an organizer and a pioneer and a pastor. He was appointed governor of Judah. And along with Joshua the priest, he led 50,000 eager and energetic, patriotic and pioneering Jews to pull up stakes, return to Judah, reconstruct the city, and rebuild God's temple. And they got off to a great start. They laid the temple's foundation in the second month of the year 535. But that's as far as the construction got. Zerubbabel, you see, ran into problems. And the work came to a screeching halt. Enter the prophet Haggai. What a guy. Haggai. God sent him to light a fire under the Jews. His job was to cause them to see the significance of God's temple. And to reprioritize its construction. God wasn't happy with the building delays. And this, my friend, is a message for you and me. For we also have been called by God to construct His temple. In our case, it's this church. The prophecy of Haggai is as relevant to us as it was to the Jews who returned to Babylon. Like the temple of old, the church is the one place in the world today where people can gather and be assured of meeting God. 
It's a place of worship and community and sacrifice and most of all, a place of love. I've heard it said, every chair in the church should be a love seat. You know, people tend to measure the importance of a church by what we do. They count the folks we feed and the material we distribute and the buildings we erect and the aid we offer and the organization we provide or the funds we collect. But the real value of a church is not what we do, it's what we are. Our church and others like it are the dot on the map where a person in our community can reach out and find God. We're that tangible point of contact. Folks should be able to walk through those doors, feel God's love through his people, and hear God's truth through his scriptures. You know, when God looks down on a community, the spiritual hot spot isn't City Hall or the police station or the university or the business center or Restaurant Row or Parks and Rec. It's his church. We are the God spot. Other groups can feed and distribute and organize and fund, but only the church can be the house and temple of the living God. I've heard it said, the church has many critics, but no rivals. The church serves a unique and vital role, and every Christian, including you and me, has a divine calling to help build the church. Now notice Haggai begins here in chapter 1, verse 2. Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, This people says the time has not, has, has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Now here's the first clue that God's angry with these Jews. Usually he calls them my people, but here he says this people. <laughs> and this people are living by a motto. Always put off until tomorrow what you, can, what you can do today. <laughs> they, they were procrastinators. That was their problem. It reminds me of the pastor's son. He was just eight years old, but he'd been raised in church his whole life, and he'd always heard these biblical terms, justification and sanctification and revelation and propitiation, all the Asians. And the boy had, had been exposed to these terms countless times, but he didn't really know what they meant. He just knew that they were church words. One day in class, his teacher asked if anyone knew the meaning of the word procrastination. Little boy, his hand shot up in the class and then he stated, I'm not really sure what it means, but I know it's something my church believes in. Well, sadly, many churches seem to believe in procrastination. It's their modus operandi. It characterizes all that they do. It's one thing to wait on the Lord, but what if the time is now? And what if God's tool is you? I believe we need to trust in the Lord, but we need to trust, not rust. When Zerubbabel and the Jews returned to the land, they immediately went to work on the temple. They took up an offering, and they built an altar, and they hired stonemasons and carpenters, and they imported cedar logs, and they laid the foundation. But then the work shut down. You could say they tossed in the trowel. Zerubbabel butted heads with the county officials. And while the Jews were in Babylon, a people called the Samaritans had moved in and occupied the land. Now these Samaritans, they were uncomfortable that the land's rightful owners were coming back. And they opposed and they tried to sabotage Zerubbabel's efforts. 
Eventually, they secured an injunction from Persia that stopped the work. It got cleared up. But in the meantime, the momentum was lost. These once enthused Jews started to battle frustration. Distraction took hold. And for the next 15 years, 15 years now, the rebuilding project gets neglected until the year 520 B.C. For in that one year, over a four-month span, the prophet Haggai delivered four fiery sermons designed to jumpstart the temple construction. We have those sermons in this prophecy. Haggai's first sermon deals with the people's self-centeredness. You might want to write these four words down. Self-centeredness. His second sermon shows the people's short-sightedness. His third sermon addresses the people's self-righteousness. And then sermon number four addresses Zerubbabel's tendency to second-guess. Today, God is building a spiritual temple, this church. And the biggest problems we face are the same four encountered by Zerubbabel. You know, in Matthew 16, verse 18, Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. This means the victory has already been won. The outcome is certain. Nothing can defeat us. The church is invincible. You know, in the years I I coached Little League, which was many, many years, I'd always gather up the team, and I'd look the kids eyeball to eyeball, all 12 players, And I would assure them that there's no other team in the league that can beat us. Nobody can beat us, guys. The only team that can defeat us is us. If we don't think, if we don't try our best, if we don't work together, we'll self-destruct. And the same applies to this church. The only way for us to lose is if we get self-centered or short-sighted. Or become self-righteous? Or we sit in the peanut gallery and second-guess ourselves? I believe the message of Haggai is a timely word from God to Calvary Chapel, Stone Mountain. And I'm praying for our church today. Well, Haggai's first sermon was delivered on August the 29th. It begins in chapter 1, verse 3. The word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying... Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? Notice the prophet's sarcasm. The Jews said it wasn't time to build God's house, but they had certainly had time to build their own houses. And not just houses. Notice paneled houses. Good grief, the Jerusalem suburbs look like the Atlanta home show. I mean, everybody was styling the newest designs and and the most elaborate decors. These Jews were living in luxury. You know, Ezra chapter 3 verse 7 tells us that when this construction on the temple began, the Jews brought in cedar logs from Lebanon to help build the temple. It's my suspicion that their fancy cedar siding on their homes came from the building material that they had lifted from the Lord. Imagine stealing cedar planks that had been intended for God's house and then using them to build your own house. Here were people who started out serving God, but over time their attention shifted from God's house to their own house. 
And I can't tell you how many times I've seen this happen. The, the couple who hung out at the church, who were really involved, one day they drop a down payment on a house and we never see them again. And it's not just a home that can cause people to grow self-absorbed. A whole host of distractions prompt people to retreat into their own little world. Cause their hearts to get no bigger than their own four walls. Their career or their kids' activities or hobbies or youth sports or their lawn work can become a deadly diversion. Hey, we all want and expect a strong church when we need one. But what are we doing to make it strong? Four guys were out playing golf on a Sunday morning. After a few holes, it started to rain. They they returned to the clubhouse, but lightning had struck a power line and the restaurant was closed. I mean, the whole day was a wash. On the way to the car, one of the guys, he turns to his partner and he says, You know, we we could have just as well gone to church this morning. That's when the fellow turns back and he says, Nah, I couldn't have gone to church today anyway. My wife is sick and at home in bed. Hey, there is a temple to be built. And you have a part to play. But how far down your list of priorities has the building of that temple sunk? See, Haggai warns us here in verses 5 and 6, Consider your ways. You have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but do not have enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, earns wages to put into a bag with holes. In other words, live for yourself and the rewards never equal the investment. Self-centeredness produces a hollow existence. You see, Zerubbabel's distracted workers, they were involved in an empty pursuit, a vain gain. And Haggai paints a graphic picture here. He says that living for yourself is like shopping with a bottomless shopping bag. Imagine walking down the aisles of Walmart, you're carrying your little shopping bag, you're purchasing item after item, you're dropping them in that bag, But the bag's not filling up. It stays empty. And you'll go broke in the process. Hey, it sounds like the words of Jesus. He who finds his life will lose it. But he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Real fulfillment comes when I lay down my selfish ambitions and throw myself into a great work for God. This is God's suggestion to these people in verse 8. He says, go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified. Wow. Speaking of great works for God, let me talk for a moment about the kind of temple that we envision and that we're trying to build here at Calvary Chapel. You know, we've got no interest in swapping sheep with other churches. We want to reach folks who've never tasted God's love. And we're trying to gather up all types of people, not just folks who look or act or who live like us. In God's presence, there's fullness of joy, and I want this place to be a joyful place. Neither do we hammer folks with the mallet of morality. That's not how we believe people become holy. 
Believers should learn to live and abide in God's grace and trust His Spirit to change them from the inside out. How we've tired of human opinion and want to trumpet God's Word. And we want Jesus without the religious trappings and the traditions of men. Cookie-cutter Christianity isn't for us. You don't have to be like me to be like Jesus. Aren't you glad? We create, crave reality. And we despise hypocrisy, even when it appears in us. Our pursuit is genuine, authentic, spirit-led life with God. We believe life starts when you give it away. To be unhappy, just get selfish. We believe God's forgiveness is free, and we want to give it freely. We believe that the whole Bible can make a whole Christian who can reach the whole world. In a nutshell, these are the values of our church. This is what we're all about. And I hope you agree, building such a church constitutes a great work. And you have a contribution to make. Be it with your money, or your time, or your gifts, or your prayers, or your service, or your encouragement, or just your attendance. It reminds me of the fellow who stayed overnight at the monastery. For dinner, the brothers brought him a the best fish and chips he had ever eaten. In fact, he was so impressed by these fish and chips that he went back into the kitchen to compliment the cook. Actually, two priests had been working on these fabulous fish and chips. The first priest introduced himself. He said, well, I'm the fish fryer. And then the second priest, he said, and, and, and I'm the chip monk. Hey, you may be the fish fryer or you may be the chipmunk, but each one of us has a place in cooking up a good meal here and building the temple of God. Read God's conclusion here in verse 9. He says, you look for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. I mean, they had landed in Jerusalem with great expectations, but God made sure their life was a letdown. The little bit they did accumulate, he blew away. God sent lean times. Nothing they tried worked as they'd planned. And in verse 9, Haggai asked, why? Why, God, did you do this? And God answers them, because of my house that is in ruins, while every one of you runs to his own house. Life didn't work right because their priorities were all wrong. And here's my question for us this morning. Why do we think God is going to treat us any differently? You need to remember, and your kids need to learn, there's something more important than that other dollar, and that next ball game, and that TV special, and that day at the lake. Your house should be helping to build God's house. Now Haggai preached his first sermon on August the 29th. Construction resumed on the temple September the 21st. Haggai's second sermon came three weeks later on October 17th. And understand what went on during those three weeks. The Jews celebrated their fall feasts. The Feast of Trumpets and the Day of Atonement and the Feast of Tabernacles. That all fell within that three-week period. At least 13 of the 26 days had been holy days. And as a result, very little work had gotten done. But here's what did happen. During the feast, 
Jews came to town from all the surrounding region. And there were a group of cynics who became very verbal. These were the old men, the old geezers, the geriatric Jews. These were the guys who remembered the majesty and the beauty and the grandeur of Solomon's temple. And they could tell that this rebuilt temple was going to be a shack in comparison. And they began to voice their cynicism and their negativity. Imagine the results now. Folks are pumped up. They're primed. They're raring and ready to get to a great work for God. When along comes these party poopers who basically throw a wet blanket on the whole project. They douse the flame of enthusiasm. Hey, let me testify to you. As a church leader, nothing can get as discouraging as uninformed cynicism and negativity. Man, it just sucks the wind right out of your sails. And this is why God moves so quickly to strengthen his construction bosses. Notice in chapter 2, verse 4, he says, Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord. And be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord. And work, for I am with you. You know, the way to fight through a cloud of negativity is to stay strong and keep at it. Never let the sideline critic or cynic distract you from playing the game. Understand, not every faithful pastor presides over a megachurch. You know, I pastor a wonderful church. But other churches in our community are larger in number and better equipped and have more resources. I feel at the end of the day, my ministry will be an example of a sanctified stubbornness more so than a screaming success. I think of the stone cutter who pounds the rock with his mallet over a hundred times. All he sees are a few hairline cracks. He later steps aside and on his replacement's first swing, the rock splits in pieces. That doesn't mean that the first man's efforts were futile. No, his role was strategic. And I think... What if our job is to just keep working, keep pounding, and it's the generation that succeeds us that gets to split the rock open into a million pieces? Zerubbabel just needs to stay strong and keep pounding. God gives Zerubbabel this pep talk, but then he also makes him a promise, a promise so staggering that it overshadowed the old boy's cynicism. He says in the last half of verse 6, I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land, and I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations, and I will fill this temple with glory. Notice verse 8. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. And then verse 9. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace. Now, if you were alive at the time, you would have wondered, how can this be? Solomon was history's richest man. 
He could afford the frills and the extras. He hired the most skilled craftsmen. He brought in imports from around the world. How could Zerubbabel's temple ever be more glorious than Solomon's? In fact, the Babylonian Talmud, a Jewish source, tells us that there were at least five strategic pieces missing from the second temple that Zerubbabel built that were present in the first, the Temple of Solomon. The Ark of the Covenant was missing. The fire that burned on the altar. The glory that filled the Holy of Holies. The spirit of prophecy. The voice of God. And the Urim and the Thummim. These were the stones, the sacred stones that the priests would, would throw in order to determine God's will. You see, Zerubbabel had definitely built a bare bones temple. And the question was, how could Zerubbabel's holy hut be more glorious than Solomon's loaded temple? And here's God's answer. He tells Zerubbabel in verse 7 that he'll send to this second temple something the first temple never had. He calls it the desire of all nations. This was a term that the Jewish rabbis understood to refer to the Messiah. What made Zerubbabel's temple more glorious than Solomon's? Here's the answer. It was visited by the Son of God Himself. Jesus came to this temple. God incarnate graced its halls and taught in its porticos and worked miracles in its courtyards. Indeed, the glory of God filled this simple second temple in a way that exceeded the glory evident in the first temple. Jesus the Christ was the second temple's greater glory. The glory of Jesus more than made up for the trimmings that the second temple lacked. The problem with the pessimists were their short-sightedness. And God makes a point to them in verse 8. He says, the silver is mine and the gold is mine. In other words, if God had wanted Zerubbabel's temple to be elaborate and ornate and embellished, as beautiful as Solomon's temple, he could have paid for the bling. I mean, it was, it was obvious he could have afforded it. Apparently, God's concern was not to make a fancy, splashy temple. The old guys had made superficial evaluations. They had only looked at the brick and mortar. They didn't see the purpose that God had in store for this temple. And we too can make similar judgments. We think of a church of 15,000 people as more glorious than a church of 50. Or we think of spacious, sprawling new facilities. They somehow have a greater glory than the storefront church or the warehouse sanctuary. Don't be deceived. God has an individual plan for every church. The church is where Jesus dwells. Its splendor and size mean very little to God. In Matthew 18 verse 20, Jesus told his disciples, Where two or three are gathered together in my name, I'm there in the midst of them. Jesus has a purpose for every church, large or small, glitzy or gritty, whether it meets in a big house or an outhouse or a warehouse. If Jesus shows up every week, how dare you consider that church to be insignificant? There are some churches in our community that look like they were built by Solomon. I mean, they have the best programs and the best pastors. In comparison, this church and its pastors, we're Zerubbabel-like. Man, we just barely up from the rubble, trust me. 
I suppose if you look hard enough, there are lots of reasons to grow cynical and skeptical about this church and its pastor. But I want you to know, there's also a reason you should love this church and support this church and get involved in helping to build this church. For God has promised us the desire of all nations. And I know it, I'm here every week. Jesus fills this church with his grace and his glory. We are privileged to be a part. In chapter 2, verse 7, Haggai writes of God, he says, I will shake all nations and they shall come to the desire of all nations. You know, I believe there's a shaking going on in the world today. And not just in Haiti, by the way. Society is in upheaval. I mean, we're shaken economically. Marriage is is being shaken. It's in decline. Divorce is up. Children are victims of broken homes. Evolutionary propaganda is destroying our respect for human life. Moral relativism has stripped us of right and wrong. Pornography tortures the minds of millions. Violence runs rampant. Our courts are ineffective. We've got problems. There's a shaking going on. I heard of a New York judge recently who was mugged And afterwards, he called a press conference to announce to his constituency that his experience would not affect any of his decisions. One elderly lady stood up and shouted, Then mug him again! I mean, when are we going to do something to stop the violence? Hey, there's a shaking going on. And this shaking is producing a seeking. People are looking for answers today, and they're looking in a spiritual direction. You know, when we were, this, when this building was under construction, I came up here one day just to sort of check on things. And, and a young man, I noticed him out in back, he had wandered up to the church. He'd just sort of been led mysteriously over here to the property. He told me that he had gotten into a fight with his wife. And he said that he just felt God's peace in this place. And I was able to share with him some scriptures and we prayed together. And and if you go back to the walkway outside on this side of the building, I guess it's over here on the north side of the back of the building, you'll see a scripture that I took a stick and and I I wrote it in the wet concrete before it hardened. And you'll see a scripture there in the wet concrete. It's Haggai chapter 2 verse 9, our text this morning. For this verse has been prophetic for us. We believe when we built this building that Jesus would reveal a greater glory here than in our former facility. And that this building would be a place of peace. And that is exactly what's happened. If these walls could talk. You know, I'm more excited today about our church than ever before. Not because I expect some kind of mega church, but Jesus works in this place. Yeah, we're a brown bag operation for sure. But God's grace is here. Now, now the last two of Haggai's sermons, they were preached on the same day, December the 18th. Two months had expired since his second sermon. Enough time for another problem to arise with the workers. Zerubbabel's band of merry men had become proud. They had developed a toxic case of self-righteousness. Oh, look at what we're building for God! And here's the potential pitfall for any church. The church was meant to be a source of pleasure to God, not a source of pride 
for his people. Haggai humbles them with a lesson in Levitical law. In chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, he explains that holiness is non-communicable. In other words, you don't get holy by hanging out with holy people or by visiting holy places or by building a holy temple. Holiness is not some virus. Holiness is not contagious. You know, if Billy Graham sneezes on you, it won't make you any more godly or spiritual. You can swim in a sea of holy water and you won't come out any holier than you were when you dove in. And here's his point. Erecting a temple is no substitute for commitment and purity and faith. What we do with our hands is no excuse for what happens in our hearts. Don't get puffed up. Attitude matters even for temple builders. And Haggai's fourth sermon was directed to Zerubbabel. Apparently, you see, the governor had done a lot of second-guessing himself. He, he had wondered about his own decisions and leadership. Zerubbabel had been plagued by self-doubt. And Haggai encourages him. He assures him that God will exalt him in a wonderful way. In verse 23, God tells Zerubbabel that he'll make him like a signet ring. The signet was the king's official seal. It was a sign of great authority. Zerubbabel was to occupy an important post. Now in his lifetime, that never really materialized. I mean, Zerubbabel was one of many, many governors all across the empire. He'd been assigned really to a distant post in the outback of Judah. Few of his peers probably knew he existed. And when you think about it, when it comes to Bible heroes, he doesn't fare much better, does he? When you think of the great men of the faith, does Zerubbabel come to mind? Probably not. He's eclipsed by men like Moses and David and Peter and Paul. But verse 23 causes many Bible scholars to believe that Zerubbabel will play a vital role in the last days when Jesus comes back to earth and reigns over his kingdom. In this life, he was overlooked. But in the kingdom age, he may be known around the world. And this is why I think heaven, you know, one reason I'm going to love to be in heaven is because I love surprises. And heaven is going to be full of surprises. Christians who serve faithfully in anonymity will occupy the important posts while those who labored in the spotlight may just get the back seats. Catch this. Check this out. God may use you in this life to do great things, or He may use this life to prepare you for great things in the kingdom come. Temple builders aren't always appreciated in the here and now. Their promotion is still future. So Barabbas is a reminder of the promise. He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much if not in this lifetime, in the life to come. Let me wrap it up. Like the temple of old, the church today is the most strategic institution on earth. We connect people to Jesus. We don't deserve it, but Jesus is in our midst. And we can take God's hand and man's hand and we can put them together. What other institution can deliver such a service? No corporation or team or charity or institution or enterprise 
We are God's hot spot. That's why we need to beware of self-centeredness and short-sightedness and self-righteousness and second-guessing ourselves. We need to be strong. We need to believe. We need to be humble. We need to be assured. Hey, there's only one team that can beat us. And that's us. Father, we thank you for your words today and for your love for us. We thank you for what you're doing here at Calvary Chapel and what you're doing here in our church. We pray you'll build a strong and mighty church that will bring great, great glory to Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.